This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu's On Books podcast with me, Amit Barua, your host for this episode. The 50th anniversary of Bangladesh's liberation takes place on December 16th. Much has been written about the Indian role and Delhi's assistance to the Mukti Bahini. Chandrasekhar Dasgupta, who served in India's mission in Bangladesh soon after liberation, has provided a riveting insider account of Delhi's preparations for a free Bangladesh. By no means an agreed goal within the Indian establishment in the early part of March 1971, in his new book, India and the Bangladesh Liberation War. But the Pakistani massacre in Dhaka on March 25th and subsequent attacks by the Pakistani army in East Bengal convinced everyone in the Indian establishment that Bangladesh was an idea whose time had come. I have many questions for Mr. Dasgupta, and I'm delighted that he agreed to speak to the Hindus on Books podcast. Welcome, Mr. Dasgupta. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Mr. Dasgupta, my first question. India prepared for nine months for a war that lasted for about nine days. You are all praised for the manner in which a committee of secretaries functioned and delivered all that was expected of them in close coordination with the military leadership. Given the normal inertia in the Indian bureaucracy, how did this become possible? I think the government machinery functioned so effectively because India had a grand strategy. Arguably for the first and only time since 1947, we had uh, such a grand strategy. My book shows how in April, May 1971, India formulated a comprehensive plan, what I call a grand strategy, which encompassed military, diplomatic, and domestic initiatives with the aim of bringing the Bangladesh Liberation War to a successful conclusion by the end of the year. The committee of secretaries worked to this plan in coordination with the armed forces. And because there was a grand strategy, an overarching plan, the committee of secretaries was able to work with such exceptional efficiency and speed. Mr. Dasgupta, how would you compare India's Bangladesh mission with that of the IPKF uh, going to Sri Lanka in 1987? Specifically, you refer to how India was keen to have an end date, even before the war began, for its troops to return home. You know, strategic planners often fail to work out a clear exit strategy before they send troops into a foreign country. Let's take a few examples outside India. I mean, in the case of the United States, for example, the wars in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq all provide sobering examples of what happens in the absence of a clear exit strategy. Now, in our own case, when planning the Sri Lanka operation in 1987, we seem to have had a vague idea that our troops could be withdrawn quite soon. But obviously, we had no clear plan. In 1971, it was very different. While drawing up plans for joint operations with the Bangladesh authorities, this was in November, 
we pressed them to indicate the earliest date by which our troops could be withdrawn. When Mujib passed through Delhi in January, Mrs. Gandhi seized the opportunity to discuss the question with him. And in February, Mujib and Mrs. Gandhi agreed uh, on 31st March 1972 uh, as the date for completing the withdrawal. Subsequent to that, on Mrs. Gandhi's request, the date was advanced to 15th March. I think it was very, very important to withdraw our troops as soon as it became possible, not only because we wanted our boys back home, but also because it earned goodwill for us in Bangladesh. If our troops were to stay on in Bangladesh for an indefinite period or for a very long period even, I think we would have lost much of the goodwill that we earned in the December 1971 war. Mr. Dasupta, you point out that India's external intelligence agency, RNAW, in the form of its chief, R.N. Kao, had correctly assessed that the West Pakistan establishment would never accept a dominant role for the Eastern Wing. Did this in any way affect Indian preparations to help in the creation of a free and independent Bangladesh? Well, um, yes, as you said, the raw chief, Kao, offered the assessment that the Pakistan army and the West Pakistan establishment more generally would never accept a dominant role for the Bengalis of the Eastern Wing. So uh, this assessment was offered after the Awami League won an absolute majority of seats in the Pakistan National Assembly elections, you know, which took place in December 1970. And right up to March 25th, there was a debate in the government of India, within the government of India, as to whether this was going to lead to the breakup of Pakistan. The fact that the democratic verdict was not going to be honored by the West Pakistan establishment and the army. In the course of this debate, the Ministry of External Affairs, uh, at least most officers in the Ministry of External Affairs, the head of the Pakistan division was an exception. They felt that while a breakup was certainly on the cards, it was certainly possible, it was not quite inevitable. Some sort of accommodation could be worked out between Mujib and Bhutto on the one hand, you know, which would allow Bhutto to be in effective control of West Pakistan, while the East and the center lay with Mujib. And uh, likewise, an arrangement could be worked out between Mujib and the army, because the army's principal concern was that it should have its share of the budget, what it regarded as its, uh, <laughs> as its legitimate share of the budget, always exceedingly large that some sort of a prior arrangement could be worked out in this respect. And indeed, during the course of the next two months, some attempts, tentative attempts were made in, you know, in these directions, but they didn't work out. So, you see, the thing was that the foreign ministry, the Ministry of External Affairs, and the Prime Minister's office, they felt that the only hope of a breakthrough in India-Pakistan relations as a whole 
the only hope lay in the Awami League forming a government at the center in Islamabad, that the Pakistan army and the West Pakistan establishment were so fixated on a policy of a perpetual hostility towards India that a breakthrough was not really you know, very likely. Uh, but if the Bengalis of the East, uh, who didn't have this uh, sort of hang-up, were to form the kernel of a government at the center, then uh, there was hope for addressing issues in a reasonable way. Not that we expected an overnight solution of issues like Kashmir or even Faraka, but we thought that these issues could be managed and we could make progress towards a resolution in course of time. So the hope was that the Awami League would be allowed to form a government at the center. And these hopes were dashed on March 25, 25th, when the Pakistan army launched a savage crackdown, a brutal crackdown in the course of which hundreds of thousands were killed and, and 10 million Bengalis were driven across the borders as refugees in India. Mr. Dasgupta, can you specifically tell us about the role of Mrs. Gandhi's principal secretary, P.N. Haksar, who by all accounts in your book played a key role in planning and in implementing this grand strategy that India had for Bangladesh? Yes, I think, you know, Mrs. Gandhi was largely a, a sort of followed the advice of a set of advisors led by P.N. Haksa, but including also P.N. Dhar, R.N. Kao, uh, the Foreign Secretary, P.N. Cole on the civilian side, and all these people worked in very close coordination with General Manikshaw, the army chief. The principal advisor certainly was P.N. Haksa, and it was Haksa who selected Dhar, D.P. Dhar, for this job of coordinating with Bangladesh and being in charge of the Bangladesh operation. So Haksa was the principal advisor. Mrs. Gandhi, in most cases, followed their advice, not in all cases. For example, her advisors favored signing the Treaty of Friendship with the Soviet Union even before Kissinger's return from Beijing. Uh, Mrs. Gandhi held out and what tipped the balance was what Kissinger told the uh, Indian ambassador in Washington, L.K. Cha, you know, words to the effect that uh, we should not count on American understanding uh, if China were to move troops to the Indian border uh, in the event that war broke out between India and Pakistan. The point I want to make is that, you know, the credit for 1971 does not go to any single individual, not to Mrs. Gandhi, not to Manikshaw, not to, you know, X, Y, or Z. It is shared by a very large, by innumerable people. Certainly a great share of the credit goes to Mrs. Gandhi for her indomitable leadership, for her indomitable leadership, and even more than that, for taking the opposition into confidence to the extent possible. She rose above the temptation of depicting the victory as a personal triumph or a triumph for her party. 
Uh, at the end of the war, she made it a point to pay tribute on the floor of parliament, not only to the soldiers who sacrificed their lives for the victory, but to the opposition parties for their understanding and cooperation during the war. Her biggest contribution was that she made it a national effort, not simply an, an, an individual triumph of victory or a triumph of victory for her party, but the triumph and victory of the nation as a whole. But uh, apart from that, there were her advisors, a lot of credit goes to them. Credit goes to Manikshaw and the other service chiefs for the inspiring leadership of the armed forces during the war. It goes to so many diplomats and civil servants who implemented policy. The soldiers who made the supreme sacrifice on the battlefield will be remembered forever in the annals of India and Bangladesh. There were millions of people, often very poor people, who welcomed the refugees, who were prepared to share the little that they had with the hapless refugees. The credit for our success in 1971 goes to all these people. You know, it was a national triumph, and I think it's a it's a huge mistake to depict it as the victory of this or that individual. Uh, Mr. Rasgupta, you also seem to debunk the theory that Field Marshal Sam Manikshaw had dissuaded Mrs. Gandhi from sending an unprepared army into East Bengal, possibly in April. What does the written record which you have relied on, what, what does that suggest? Is, is this uh, handed down within quotation marks wisdom uh, really correct? No. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, Manikshaw was a great raconteur. No disrespect here. A raconteur is somebody who tells a story well. And Manikshaw told his stories, you know, very well, with a great deal of color. And therefore, it has somehow gone into our folklore. But the record is quite clear. And the record is that as early, immediately after the crackdown, we have a record. Uh, I mean, it's... Uh, it's a brief for the Prime Minister prepared by P.N. Haksa, a brief for a meeting with, uh, with senior political figures. And the brief is very clear that hasty action on our part, if we were to get involved straight away, uh, it would be depicted in the international community as another Indo-Pakistan clash, that all sympathy and support for the Bangladesh cause would be lost. So an um, immediate or early intervention would not serve the objective of our grand strategy, which was, you know, to help Bangladesh free itself from Pakistan control and to emerge as an independent sovereign nation recognized by the international community. Now, I'm not simply relying on the written records of the prime minister's office. This fact, that is the primacy of the political consideration in deciding the timing of, the, of our military involvement, was quite clear to, our, to concerned officers in the army headquarters. And we have the testimony of Major General Sukhvan Singh, who served as the Deputy Director of Military Operations in 1971. General Sukhvan Singh is the author of a of really an excellent work 
on the Bangladesh uh, War of 1971. And I'm quoting from his book, page 21 to be precise. He first explains that, you know, Manikshaw's military reasons for delaying the postponing military operations still after the monsoons. And then he goes on to say, and I quote, political compulsions clinched the issue. If the creation of an independent Bangladesh was achieved by Indian military action, how was its domestic and external viability to be assured without its recognition by the international forum, the United Nations? If India intervened without clearly justifying action in foreign eyes, the charge that it was engineering the breakup of Pakistan would be established and Bangladesh would be refused recognition by the majority of nations, unquote. So it was clearly understood that the political grounds had to be prepared before military intervention could be contemplated. So General Manikshaw's recommendation, which was of course a very sound recommendation from the military point of view, only backed up a conclusion that had already been reached on political grounds that an, uh, you know, a hasty intervention would not serve the overall political aims and objectives of the operation. It was a secondary factor. It was perfectly relevant. It was very important. And it is no criticism of Field Marshal Manikshaw. He was a human being after all. He made a huge contribution in 1971. But like all other mortals, he had his sort of human frailties. And it was not unusual for somebody to think that his own contribution was somewhat more critical than it was in fact. But in the end, it also suited Mrs. Gandhi, you know, his contention. I mean, it was not something that didn't suit her. Absolutely. And here again, I'm relying on sources from both the civilian and military sides. When I write that uh, Mrs. Gandhi's immediate objective was to deflect pressure from cabinet colleagues and other senior politicians, you know, who were so agitated uh, by the brutalities of the Pakistan army that they wanted the army to be sent in uh, immediately uh, into East Bengal. So on the, uh, on the political side, we have the testimony of P.N. Dhar, who was in uh, Mrs. Gandhi's office at that time. And uh, he records, he records uh, in his book that the object really was to deflect pressure from some of her cabinet colleagues. And again, General Sukhvan Singh mentions this. He says that there were rumors that two members of the cabinet more specifically Chavan and Jagjivan Ram, were strongly pressing Mrs. Gandhi to send the army immediately. So these, this is the background on which I based the statement that she used Manikshaw's uh, very well-considered advice to deflect the pressure from, from her cabinet colleagues. I mean, you have this account on both the military and the political side. I'm not relying on, uh, you know, the memoirs of just, you know, some of, of Mrs. Gandhi's acolytes. Mrs. Asputta, your book, you know, it, to my mind, uh, in the main, 
suggests that India planned this for about a year. And clearly, the international constellation of forces that was ranged against India was formidable. And uh, in a sense, the backing secured uh, from the Soviet Union, which you uh, describe in rich detail, uh, probably gave India a short window in December for what happened finally. And uh, you also point out that the Ministry of External Affairs has actually written that they wanted to provoke Pakistan into a war. And on the 4th, India was to recognize Bangladesh on the 4th of December. And actually, Pakistanis launched an incursion on the 3rd of December, 1971, obviating the need for India to do anything. So how important do you think was India's external positioning in all this? Well, I think the external position was, uh, or rather the foreign policy dimension was very important. Uh, a very important element in uh, our grand strategy. Uh, in the first place, we had to build up sympathy and support for the Bangladesh cause. This was mainly done by the Bangladeshis, of course, but they received a great deal of support and assistance from us. Secondly, we had to explain to the international community uh, that the horrors that were being inflicted by the Pakistan army in East Bengal were not simply an internal affair of Pakistan in which we had no right to interfere. It was more than just a simple internal affairs because Pakistan was driving out millions of refugees into India. That imperiled our own stability and security in our eastern, in, in our eastern areas. In the state of Tripura, the refugees actually outnumbered the local population. These imposed severe stresses on India's own political and social stability. So we made the point that Pakistan was exporting its domestic problems into India. And if the international community failed to do its duty of restraining Pakistan, of creating conditions within East Bengal, which would allow the refugees to return to their homes, then India might be compelled to take steps to do so. So we had to create that ground. Thirdly, we had to ensure a regular, uninterrupted, and timely supply of military equipment required for the war effort. And this was done through cultivating relations with the Soviet Union. We had to ensure that there was no sudden interruption in petroleum supplies. We had put it to the Russians uh, in August, immediately after signing the Indo-Soviet Treaty, that if uh, there was an oil embargo against India, the Russians could uh, send us Iraqi oil. The Russians were making large purchases of Iraqi oil. These could be shipped to India. And finally, we had to ensure that we had the support of at least one superpower so that the Security Council did not bring military operations to an untimely and premature halt by, by imposing a ceasefire. Uh, we had to have at least one superpower prepared to cast its veto. So all these objectives, uh, objectives which were pursued by the foreign ministry, with great success, I may add, 
and they were all essential to the successful conclusion, to the successful implementation of our military plans. You have to see our military plans in the context of the larger grand strategy that we had worked out in 1971. Mr. Daskupta, uh, I know that uh, history doesn't respect ifs and buts. But uh, do you think that if India didn't have the uh, support of the Soviet Union, do you think that we could have uh, done what we did in Bangladesh in 71? Well, you know, I, uh, I do not wish to play the role of a fortune teller, I can't say. I've tried to understand what happened in the past, you know, our history. But uh, this sort of uh, contrafactual thing, I'd hesitate to make a guess. All I can say is this, that even before the U.S.-China uh, Entente had developed, the U.S.-China-Islamabad axis uh, had begun to become clear, even before that, most of our policy planners were veering in favor of concluding a treaty with the Soviet Union. And the reason for, for it is this, that our plans were based, our military and uh, our political planning was based on military operations taking place towards the end of the year, when the passes would be closed and it would not be possible for China to, to send significant troops across the, the border passes. Uh, but what would happen if Pakistan and China were to preempt this by starting an operation much earlier in the year, before the monsoon set in? So this was why Swaranthing went to to Moscow uh, and to seek uh, Soviet understanding and support. And after those talks, you know, the most policymakers in Delhi tended to favor concluding an agreement, uh, you know, as a deterrent against China, even at that time. But Mrs. Gandhi held out. She didn't want significant reinterpretation of our non-aligned policy at that stage. She still, you know, hoped that the United States could play a constructive role. And it was only when it became clear that this was not going to be the case that uh, she accepted the recommendation of her advisors and the treaty was signed. Before I let you go, Mr. Dasgupta, my last question. You know, as someone who's watched the world uh, closely for more than half a century, uh, we all know the kind of language uh, that Nixon and Kissinger used for Mrs. Gandhi and uh, for India language which I'm not going to repeat. But I just want to know from you, why do you think that this kind of language was used? Is what Was this Mrs. Gandhi's persona? Was it India's independent attitude at international forums? What was it that uh, led to such an extreme reaction from the top echelons of the American leadership? Well, I, I think Nixon deeply disliked and distrusted Indira Gandhi. He didn't like Indians in general, partly because on all his previous visits to India and Pakistan, he had been received with all due uh, protocol uh, curtsies in, in India, 
but in, when he went to Pakistan, he was lionized, he was fated. So you, you think know, India think didn't do enough to sort of massage his ego? I, I think that was part of it, perhaps. I mean, we aren't in the business of sucking up to, to foreign dignitaries. I mean, we treat them with respect, with courtesy, you know, with due deference. But So it was a case of him liking the Pakistanis more than us? Well, you know, Pakistan was, frankly speaking, a client state. The sort of, you know, the sort of fawning attitude which they had towards American leaders was not something which could reasonably be expected from a, from a democracy. Kissinger also suggests that Nixon, um, uh, you know, had deep sort of personal insecurities and somehow Mrs. Gandhi tended to bring this out in him. Nixon also was given to using foul language in general, you know, this was I mean, his normal mode of speech, and it was more aggravated when it came to Mrs. Gandhi and India. Uh, as regards other leaders, I don't think uh, you know this is true of them. Kissinger did not share any of Nixon's prejudices. Uh, he did not normally use any sort of foul language. But he also massaged his boss's ego but, a lot. Yeah, he massaged Nixon's sort of ego. He was a bit of a courtier. He was a great statesman. I mean, he is a great statesman and an outstanding analyst of international affairs, one of the most perceptive of our times. But he was also something of a courtier and they tended to you know, play along with, with the president. And he would uh, sort of echo uh, some of these epithets when he was in Nixon's company. That was not Kissinger's style. It was only Nixon who habitually used you know, bad words to describe Mrs. Gandhi or Indians more generally. So we leave it here, Ambassador Chandrasekhar Das Gupta. Thank you very much for talking to The Hindu. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 